0: As you're finding your seats, if you would, open up your scriptures to Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Again, we are in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. should be pretty familiar with this, these couple of verses by now. Starting in verse 13, if you would, read along with me. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am whom I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh. Yahweh. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. If you would, pray with me this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, God, would I just am humble as I approach this text once more, Lord. That the God of the universe that created everything through just speaking would reveal his name to a people. That we would encourage that people to use his personal name. That he would reveal the meaning of that name to the world. God, I, as I think about this passage this morning, Lord, and I think about your scriptures and and I repent, Lord, in, in how often I take it for granted that we just have your word so available to us. This miraculous revelation that has been given to us. The scripture that tells us who you are and how we can have a relationship with you, Lord. God, forgive me and forgive all of us, Lord, for taking that for I pray that there's a sense of awe this morning, a sense of awe in in who you are, what your name is, Lord, and the fact that you would reveal it to us. Be with us, Lord, in your Son's name, Amen. Last week I started with a question, and that question is, "What is Scripture? What is Scripture?" And I said in seminary we um, spent a lot of time answering this question: "What is Scripture?" It's truth. It's light. It's God's Word. But I think more than anything, it's God's revelation to us. It's God revealing truths, especially truths that we wouldn't know otherwise if He didn't reveal it to us. It's God revealing truths to us, truths about Himself to us. And last week, we saw that God has revealed His personal name to a people. But here's something else that Scripture is. God's word is miraculous. It's miraculous. And I want to think about that this morning. Just, just think of scripture this morning, the Bible. It's 66 documents, or what we call books, 66 books. Approximately 40 different authors. Wrote in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Over a period of time of 1,500 years. And compare that to the Quran. One book, one author, one language, one time period. Or the Book of Mormon. One book, one author, one language, one time period. The Bible has 40 different authors. Some young, some old, some professionals, some peasants, some were soldiers, some civil servants, some prisoners, some slaves, fishermen, farmers, some kings over 1,500 years, and not only that, it wrote in widely different genres we have historical narrative, right? History written out for us, poetry, song lyrics, wisdom literature, law, prophecy, family trees or genealogies, geographical surveys, population statistics, blueprints for a building. Not only that, the authors wrote in different geographical locations, different countries, stories, historical stories that span three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, written to different cultures, written often centuries apart from each other. Yet and here's the miraculous thing about Scripture, one of them, the Bible is consistent and congruent. There is one single theme that runs through it all, and that's the gospel. One main story that we see from Genesis to Revelation, God creates man, man rebels against God, and God redeems a people. Not only that, the Bible has one single hero from Genesis to Revelation, and that's Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus says himself in John five thirty seven, And the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his words abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they, in other words, the scriptures that bear witness about me. Just think about that statement right there. The scriptures bear witness about me. At this time, there's no New Testament. So Jesus is obviously talking about the Old Testament. They bear witness about him. That's an amazing statement. The NSV puts it this way. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. The scriptures, the Old Testament testifies about Jesus. In fact, Luke 24, 26, Jesus asked. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses... What's that? That's Genesis, Exodus, it's Pentateuch. Beginning with Genesis. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So here's a question I want to answer today. Does the Old Testament really point us to Jesus? Does Exodus... Point us to Jesus. Is Jesus truly the hero of Exodus? You know, I think there's a lot of people, and you may be listening in and be one of these people, or at some point in your life have seen the Bible this way, but see the Bible as two different books. You have the Old Testament, which is one book, and the New Testament, which is another book. I believe in doing this, you really you really start to see two different gods, in the Old Testament, you see the God named Yahweh, a God that's transcendent, distant, holy, God of wrath. And I think there's a lot of people that see a God in the New Testament as different than that God. A God of grace, a God God that's imminent, that's loving and forgiving. A God that's triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A God that is fatherly. My goal today is to help us see the consistency of Scripture, that the God of the Old Testament is the same exact God the New Testament, and the whole Old Testament truly does point to one hero, and that is Jesus Christ. Barry Cooper says, the Bible is singing the same song throughout both Old and New Testament, and that song is consistently about Jesus. Remember what Jesus himself said in John five thirty nine: you examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, And in those very scriptures that testify about me. Three main points that I have this morning. The meaning of Yahweh testifies about Jesus. The revealer of Yahweh testifies about Jesus. And the name of Yahweh, or better yet, the name Yahweh testifies about Jesus. Just a side note before we get going two things. One, this might be a long sermon. Just forewarning you. Second, this is going to be an apologetic sermon. In other words, there's probably not going to be a ton of practical application. I think the practical application, at least my goal, is to really just build your understanding and faith in the Scriptures. My goal is that we leave today in awe of God's Word. And really see it as miraculous. So the first point this morning is the meaning of Yahweh, She testifies about Jesus, the meaning of Yahweh. I spent a whole sermon last week on the meaning of Yahweh, and I, I really would encourage you, if you didn't hear that sermon, to go back and listen to it. I'll do a quick review, but it's not going to give it justice for why I think the meaning of Yahweh is found in Exodus chapter 34, but in Exodus 3, we see the calling of Moses in a burning bush, and God tells Moses to go, go to the people of Israel and lead them out of Egypt. Moses anticipates a question. We just read it. What if Israel asks, what is his name? In other words, what if Israel asks me, God, what is your name? What shall I say to them? And God answers Moses in three responses. And these three responses just give a little bit more information as they go along. The first response is this, tell the people that I am who I am. Second response is, tell them that, I am has sent me to you. And the third response is the Lord, which is Yahweh, God's personal name. If you look at your scriptures, it's L-O-R-D in capital letters. That just means that's the name of the Lord, Yahweh. I'm going to explain why that word Lord is there in most of your Bibles as we get going this morning. But Yahweh, tell them that Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you then God finishes by saying, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. I made the argument last week that I believe what God is mainly saying here is that I am Yahweh, and I'm about to show you what that means. Pay attention. You're going to see what it means that I am Yahweh. Therefore, the rest of the book of Exodus is God showing what it means that he is Yahweh. Right, God revealing the meaning of his name. In other words, chapters 3 through 4, he gives his name Yahweh. Chapters 5 through 40, he reveals what it means. It's the revelation of God's name. And it comes to a climax, I believe, in Exodus 34. In two verses, again, you're going to have to listen to the sermon last week to, to hear the argument why I think these two verses really are the clearest statement, I believe, definitely in the Old Testament, but I believe in all of Scripture on who God is. Two extremely important verses, and that's Exodus 34, verse 6, which says this in 7, verse 6 says this, then the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abiding in steadfast love and, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Again, I believe this is the clearest statement in the Old Testament, and again, possibly in all of Scripture, on who God is, who Yahweh is. He is a God that is both 100% merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins, and 100% holy, just, and wrathful but will by no means clear the guilty. And as I went over this passage last week, I hope you asked the question, how can that be? I mean, just think of these two verses. They sound schizophrenic, right? I mean, think about it. Forgiving iniquities and transgression and sins. In other words, that's forgiving the guilty, but who will by no means clear the guilty. (laughs) doesn't make any sense. How can God be both merciful, 100% merciful, I will not make you pay for your sins, and 100% just and holy. I will make sure you pay for your sins. <laughs> Another way of asking this is, how can God be a good, just God and overlook sin? You see this dilemma throughout the whole Old Testament. How could God show mercy on Adam and Eve and still be just. Like he said if you sin, you will die. Right? If you take the fruit of the tree, you will die. And Romans 6 makes it very clear that the penalty of sin, right, the wages of sin is death, and that's the second death. It's eternity in hell. How could God show mercy on Noah and his family if they were sinners like the rest of mankind and still be just? How can God show mercy to Isaac and Abraham and still be just. What about the sins of the family? What about Abraham's sins? How can God show mercy on Israel in, in the book of Exodus and still be just? if they were a stiff-necked people, right? If they were just like the Egyptians and the fact that they were sinners, how could God literally pass over their sins? not demand justice how can God be both forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins but who will by no means clear it doesn't make any sense it doesn't make any sense until we get to the cross where God's perfect justice is poured out on Christ and therefore God's perfect mercy can be poured out Listen, the cross resolves this dilemma. I believe Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is at the heart of who God is. It's the, the heart of, of who Yahweh is. Yahweh is a God merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquities and, and transgressions and sins, and a God that is holy, just, and wrathful, by, but who will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, the cross is at the center of who God is both just and merciful. The whole Testament points points us to Jesus and the cross. I mean, the animal that was slaughtered in Genesis 3 that clothed the nakedness of Adam and Eve points us to Jesus. The ark that saved Noah and his family from the judgment they deserved because of their sins points us to Jesus. The ram caught in the thicket that took the place of Isaac on the altar and paid for the sins of Abraham's family points us to Jesus. The blood of the Passover lamb that covered the, the sins of Israel and satisfi- satisfied God's wrath so that, the, that his wrath would pass over the homes of the Israelites points us to Jesus. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus so that God's mercy can be poured out in us. And God can be both 100% just and 100% merciful at the same time. Mystery in the Old Testament, revealed in the new the cross. And I want you guys to see, because I, again, this is consistent throughout Scripture. I want you to see this in the New Testament. Turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. We're going to be jumping a lot in Scripture, and I'd encourage you to try to follow along In your own scriptures, but it will be on the the screen here. Romans 3, chapter 3, verse 23. This is a familiar verse for most of us. Verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know what that means? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. Every single human that's ever been born besides Jesus Christ sin and fall short of the glory of God. That means Old Testament saints and New Testament saints all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. Like the grace re- received as a gift. In fact, that's that's what grace means by definition. Salvation is a gift. It's not earned through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. whom God put Forward as a propitiation. It's a fancy word that just means uh, something that satisfies God's justice or his wrath by his blood to be received by faith. It's grace through faith. We receive the grace of God by putting our trust and faith in Christ and what he did on the cross. Then Paul says something very interesting right after this this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He's talking about Old Testament saints here. Sins of Adam, passed over. Noah. Sins of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Sins of the twelve brothers. Sins of Moses. The sins of Israel. I mean, he literally passed over the sins of Israel. How about the sins of David? Think about that one. You know, we read the Old Testament and we read about David. And he's gets confronted by the prophet Nathan. And David cries out for forgiveness and repentance. You see that in Psalms 51 and God forgives him and we cheer. So look at the forgiving God. Let me ask you a question. What if you were Uriah's dad? The man that David killed and murdered? The man that 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 lost his wife to David, who he stole. What about the justice? You mean God you're just gonna let him off the hook? You're gonna just overlook that sin? He stole my daughter in law. He murdered my son? And you're going to just say, it's okay? Just pass over former sins? Look at verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. In other words, a just God who punishes sin, who, who by no means clears the guilty, and the justifier, a God of mercy and grace, of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, he could look that man in the eye and say, no, I'm not going to pass over that sin. It will be paid for. I will send my son to die in his place. James Montgomery Boyce wrote, and I just think this is beautiful, so I'm just going to quote it. wrote about this passage. He said this, Paul was thinking in temporal terms, acknowledging that before the incarnation and death of, of Christ, there had been something like a stain on God's name. Think about that. For centuries, he had been refusing to condemn, but instead actually been justifying sinful men and women. Men like Abraham, who was willing to compromise his wife's honor to save his own life. Moses, who killed an Egyptian. David, who committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then murdered her husband, Uriah, to cover it up. And women like... Uh, Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho. God had been saving these people, and when they died he did not send them to hell, which seemed to anyone looking on that he had merely passed over their sins, right In other words, turned a blind eye, forgiving them yes, but unjustly. In other words, their sins went unpunished. Was God unjust? No. No, says Paul, in the death of Christ, God's name is vindicated. It is now seen that that on the basis of his death, God had been just when he had justified the ungodly. The meaning of Yahweh points us to Jesus, the God merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins, yet at the same time will not turn a blind eye to sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty. That points us to Jesus in the cross. For God's perfect justice is poured out on Christ, and therefore God's perfect mercy can be poured out on us, so that he might be just, a just God, and the justifier, gracious God, of the one who has faith in Jesus. But that's only for those that have put their faith in Christ. And I just want to say, if you have not put your faith in Christ, this is the time through grace, or it's grace through faith. It's the only way to salvation. So the meaning of Yahweh points us to Jesus. Second point, and we're going to kind of turn and shift gears here. I believe that the revealer of Yahweh points us to Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, last week in Exodus 3, we saw that God's name was being revealed to Moses. And through Moses, it's going to be revealed to, to Israel Egypt, and really the world. In fact, it's still being revealed as we go through the book of Exodus to us, what it means that God is Yahweh. Here's my question. Who revealed God's name to Moses? Another way of asking this is, who was in the burning bush? God? Turn with me to Exodus 3, verse 1. Three verse one says this Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father in law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horab, the mountain of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the mists of a bush. Isn't that interesting, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. In Look at verse 2 again. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Now, that's really interesting. Verse 2 The Lord, right? The angel of the Lord appeared to him in the burning bush. Verse 4, God called to him out of the bush. Whoa. What's going on here? Now, again, my goal is to show the consistency of Scripture here. So let's go back to the New Testament. I know we're turning back and forth. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7, verse 30. I want you to see that the Bible is consistent here. Okay, again, Acts is written well over a thousand years after Exodus. Just imagine that in two different languages. Exodus Hebrew, Acts Greek. Let me just give the context of this passage. I think it's interesting. Stephen is being put on trial of some sort. He's about to get martyred. And the accusation is actually that he is following Jesus, and in doing so, he's turning his back on Moses. I I think one of the arguments he's making is it's Jesus that sent Moses. Look what he says. Verse 30. Now, when the 40 years had passed, so this is 40 years in Midian, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame, of the fire, in the bush. It an angel appeared to him. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came the voice of the Lord. The, the, the angel, in other words, is speaking with the voice of God. Right? There came the voice of the Lord. And listen to what he says, verse thirty-two: "I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob." Moses trembled and did not dare to look, then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals for your feet or take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the afflictions of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groanings, and I have come down to deliver them, and now I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and a judge? And one of the arguments Stephen is making is Israel's always rejected God. This man God sent, right? He sent Moses as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Who is this angel that's speaking for God? Well, I did a quick look on the word angel in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the word angel is used and, or 213 times. About 90 of those times it refers to the angel of the Lord. It means just about half the time's that word angels used in the Old Testament is referring to the angel of the Lord. Right? This character. The first time it's used is in Genesis 16. The final time it's used is in Malachi chapter 3. If you know your Bible well, that's the very first and last book of the Old Testament. In other words, this character, right, this, this title that's given to this character, the angel of the Lord, spans the whole Old Testament. And this character interacts with many important Old Testament figures. This is not an exhaustive list. There's more than this. But let me just give you a few examples. Hagar, Genesis 16. Abraham, Genesis 22. Jacob, Genesis 31 and 32. Moses, Exodus 3 and other places in the burning bush. Balaam, Numbers 22. uh, Joshua, Joshua 5 and Judges 2. Gideon, um, Judges 6. David, 2 Samuel 24. Elijah, 1 Kings 19. Hezekiah, 2 Kings 19. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel 3. Daniel, Daniel 6. uh, Zechariah, and Zechariah 1 and 3. This angel of the Lord is a main character, in other words. we see him throughout the Old Testament. He interacts with the main characters of Scripture. But that's not what's amazing about him. What's most amazing about this character is that he's presented consistently and over and over again as being equal to God. Let me just give you a few examples. Exodus 3, we just went over. It's the angel of the Lord that spoke in the bush that was the one that said, I am. Genesis 16, 11, it says this, and the angel of the Lord said to her, he's talking to Hagar, Hagar, behold, you are pregnant. And shall bear his son; you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your afflictions. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his king's, kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, "You are a god of seed." Let me just read verse eleven again. And the angel of the Lord said to her verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord, that's Yahweh, who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. Genesis 22, verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and um, bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, the angel of the Lord speaking, and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. And now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket, by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord, or Yahweh, will provide. As it is is this day, on the mount of Yahweh, it shall be provided. Judges 6, verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, Yahweh is with you. Think about that. The angel of the Lord comes and says to him, Yahweh is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if Yahweh is with us, why then has, he, has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted uh, to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of the Midian. And the Lord, that's Yahweh, and Yahweh turned to him and said, Go. He was talking in verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Verse 14, And Yahweh turned to him and said, Go. And I could just go on and on of examples. The angel of the Lord is called God. The angel of the Lord is given the name of God, Yahweh. The angel of the Lord speaks for God. The angel of the Lord is seen with the authority of God. The angel of the Lord is worshipped like God in the Old Testament. Yet, the angel of the Lord is separate in person from God. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Yahweh of hosts, O Lord of hosts. The angel of the Lord is now praying to God. He's praying to Yahweh. O Lord of hosts, how long you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years and Yahweh answered graciously and comforting, word, uh, comforting words to the angel who talked with me. In other words, Yahweh and this angel are having a conversation. Not only that, in Exodus 20, Numbers 20, and 2 Kings 19, this angel is sent by God meaning he's submissive to God. Now, I just want to be clear here. I'm treading on holy ground. (laughs) There is mystery when it comes to the Trinity. But let's just look at some of the facts. The angel of the Lord is God. He's presented as God, yet is separate from God in person. He's able to talk to God. And even submissive to God, God sends him. Who's that starting to sound like? I believe the angel Lord is Jesus, second member of the Trinity. Then why call him an angel? That's the question we should ask. Well, just think of this, and I think most of us know this: in Hebrew and in Greek, "angel" that word just means messenger. It could be translated just "messenger," right? So it could be translated, and probably should be translated, the messenger of Yahweh. Well, who is the greatest messenger of Yahweh ever? greatest prophet Jesus the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus God the Son and I want you to see this so turn with me to Judges 13 15 again we're going long today I'm sorry Thirteen 15 we'll just keep going to the copy of the passage you guys can just stay that was a joke there was like nervous laughing there. um Verse 15. Verse 13, 15. Okay, it says this. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a goat, a young goat for you. This Manoah is just asking this person that looks like a, a, just a man to him. He says, hey, we just have dinner with us. Don't go yet. And that's what he's asking. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering... And offer it to Yahweh the Lord. Man, Noah did not know that this was the angel of the Lord. Noah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? It's interesting, right? It's the same question Jacob asked as he wrestled with God. What is your name? And the man he wrestled with refused to give him his name. Same question Moses anticipates from the Israelites. What is your name? What is your name so that when your words come true we, we may honor you? What I what I think Manoah is doing here is he's trying to get the man's nature. He has some, some idea, like this is not just a man. So he's asking him for his name to try to understand who he is. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Now that's a weird response. What I what I think he's saying here, when you look at the Hebrew, he's saying, My name is too wonderful for you. A good paraphrase would be this. Why do you ask me my name it's too wonderful for you? It's beyond you. It's too wonderful. Psalms 139. Such knowledge is too wonderful. Look at verse 19. So Manoah took the young goat and the grain offering and offered it on the rock of the Lord to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. When the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. Again, verse 18, and the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. My name is is wonderful. It's too wonderful. We see this word wonderful throughout the Old Testament describing God. Psalms 1-9, I will give thanks to the Lord my whole heart i will recount all of your wonderful deeds psalm 78 4 tell um tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the lord of yahweh and his might and the wonders that he has done psalm 74 78 11 they forgot his works and the wonders they has shown them psalms 136 4 to him who alone does great wonders step steadfast love endures forever. Psalms one thirty nine. I praise you. Wait, who gets the praise here? I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I don't know how many times we take this verse and say, "I praise myself because I am wonderfully made." This is not a self esteem verse in, in that sense. This is a, a verse of praise. I praise you, God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. Not what I've done. Judges 3, 18. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask me my name? Seeing it is wonderful. My name is wonderful. You know what that reminds me of? Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born. Who's that? It's Jesus. It's a prophecy of Jesus. For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be on upon his shoulders, and and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I believe the Angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He has the name of God, Yahweh. He was in the burning bush. He's the one that sent Moses. Brings me to my third point. The name of Yahweh, or better yet, the name, comma, Yahweh, testifies about Jesus. I'll try to get through this quickly. Exodus is all about the name Yahweh. I hope you guys are starting to see that. Exodus is God revealing his name. What does it mean that he is Yahweh? Therefore, the name of Yahweh is extremely important in the book of Exodus. In fact, it's used 398 times in Exodus. But it's not just Exodus. We see this throughout the whole Old Testament. In Genesis, it's used 165 times. In Deuteronomy, it's used 550 times. In Psalms, it's used 695 times. In Jeremiah, it's used 726 times. The name of God's important. In fact, Yahweh is used well over 6,000 times. It's like 6,800 and something. Think of it this way. The Bible says God is love, right? I don't know how many sermons I've heard on God is love or how many times people quote God is love. I think it's used three times in all of the scripture, that phrase, God is love. But God is love, don't get me wrong. It just needs to be said once, right? He is love. It's all found in 1 John, but God is called Lord thousands and thousands of times. God is called Yahweh well over 6,000 times. The name of Yahweh is extremely important. So here's the question that I want to ask. How many times is the word Yahweh used in the New Testament? Not once. Isn't that interesting? Just think about that for a second. that settle in. Before I move on, I, I really want to give credit to one of our CCWs austin searles um it's really helped me with my understanding of uh, exodus i've gone through the bible i don't know how many times teaching through it and i just knew that that chapter 34 6 and 7 were two really important verses and i couldn't put my finger on why those verses were so important it's really his understanding and working with him that's really helped me understand exodus um and especially the name of god I, austin just so you know has a phd from wheaton It's pretty prestigious he's an expert in hebrew and he did his dissertation on Exodus, in particularly the name Yahweh, the name of God. He's going to be here this summer, so he's going to. You can ask him questions. Um, but this is what he says about Israel's use of God's name in the Old Testament. Israel, this is just quoting Austin. He said, Israel was certainly singing the name, praying the name, blessing and cursing using the name, and greeting one another using the, the full form of Yahweh. In other words, God gave his name to the Israelites to use, and I believe that's right. You can misuse God's name, obviously. There's a commandment about that. But he gave his name for the Israelites to use. It was a privilege to have God's name. In the beginning, they used his name. However, this correct and healthy practice began to shrink and wither around the time that Israel went into exile in Babylon. The Jews began to think that the word Yahweh was so holy that it would be, it must be protected from misuse. Some began to ascribe an unhealthy amount of reverence to the word rather than to the one to whom the word refers. Interestingly, many Jews stopped pronouncing it or only pronounced it in sacred places on special religious holidays. In other words, the Israelites, surprisingly, got legalistic about the use of the name Yahweh. They say you can only use it here and here and here, and it was very rare. This mood began to be shared by the priests, the religious leaders, and most of the Jewish people. There are reports in Jewish literature that the divine name was only being said on the Day of Atonement and only at the temple. This practice practice dominated for, for years and decades and centuries until something unbelievable happened. The full pronunciation of the divine name was Jews stopped passing on the knowledge of the proper name until somehow no one remembered exactly what was the precise word they used to refer to their God. Proper name. We only have four consonants in English. It's W-H-Y-H. We don't have any vowels. You need vowels to know how a word is pronounced. The Yahweh that I keep saying you add an a and e in english that's just a guess you don't know if that's the correct pronunciation in fact austin is convinced that's that's a wrong guess too you have to ask him about that though i'm not i'm not an expert how how did that happen in ancient hebrew they didn't write down their vowels think about this they only had consonants The vowel sounds were just passed down verbally. And you can do this in English too. If you take out, you take a sentence and you take out all the vowels, you can still read that sentence fine because we just know the vowels and where they should go. Well, in Hebrew, they just did that. It wasn't until, I think it's like the the sixth or eighth century after Christ that we put vowel dots in so we kind of know where the sounds go. That's to help us that don't speak Hebrew. Therefore, if you stop pronouncing a word after time, you lose the original pronunciation because it wasn't passed down verbally and it wasn't written down. The vowels weren't written down. All we have is four consonants. It's Y-H-W-H. And we don't know exactly how it should be pronounced. The vowels are guesses. The pronunciation, Yahweh, is a guess. Austin, again, thinks it's a wrong guess. But at least a question, what is in the original manuscripts, original Hebrew manuscripts, like the, the manuscripts we have that we translate the Old Testament in? What? What is there when the name of God comes? Well, it's just the letters Y-H-W-H. But traditionally, when the Jews would read the Old Testament in the Old Old Testament, when they would read it out loud, they would pronounce the word Adonai every time those four letters came. Adonai means Lord or Master. And that's why most of your Bibles have followed that tradition because we don't know, if you just have Y-H-W-H, you're like, how do I pronounce that? (laughs) And so, most of your translations have put L-O-R-D, capital letters, to let you know that this is the name of the Lord. And they follow that tradition in place of God's name. Here's where it gets interesting. Jesus and his apostles used a Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Most of the quotes that we see in the New Testament are quotes from the Septuagint. So, Jesus and the apostles used the Septuagint when they would um, quote the Old Testament. Guess what word, Greek word, is used in Septuagint in replace of W or Y-H-W-H? Kyrios. Kyrios means Lord or Master. In other words, the Jews during the time of Jesus related the word Lord, L-O-R-D, or Kyrios, with the name of God. Everyone in the Jewish culture, when they heard that word, they, they were, you could be referring to the name of God because that's what replaced Yahweh when you spoke. Now, guess what word is used more than any other word in the New Testament to describe Jesus? Kyrios. Lord. Let me just give you a few examples, and maybe this will just jump at you as I read them. Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Kyrios, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says God is a, or Jesus is a curse, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. But Jude, four, verse four, for certain people have uh, crept in unnoticed who long ago were or des- er, were designated for the condemnation ungodly people who prevented the grace of our God into, or perverted the grace of God into sociality and denied our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let me give you just the greatest one that I think, Philippians 2 verse 5 and I actually want you to turn there if you have your, your Bibles with you. And listen, This is almost it. Philippians 2, verse 5. I'm going to start reading, but you can catch on as we, we go. Uh, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he had equality with God, but he didn't hold on to it. Instead, he, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We're very familiar with that. Therefore, because of what Christ did, therefore God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You've got to remember that Paul's a Jew. What name is above every name? It's not Jesus. It's Yahweh. The name that's above every name. Verse 10. So at the name of Jesus, now this is extremely important because in Greek, Jesus is a genitive in this form. I mean, in other words, it's possessive form. It's not dative, which is very clear in the Greek. It's, it's not at the name, comma, Jesus. Or at the name, that is Jesus. Jesus isn't the name being talked about, in other words. It's, it's at the name of Jesus. It's the name that Jesus possessed. Well, what is that name? The name that's been bestowed on him. Well, what name? So that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord. Kyrios. The glory of God the Father. Jesus is Lord. Paul is pointing us back to the name of God, Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. In fact, I'm convinced that this is the correct interpretation because Paul's quoting the Old Testament here. He's he's quoting Isaiah 45, verses 10 and 11, and it's a poem, and that poem starts like this, I am Yahweh, and there is none other. Let me just read a quote from Austin as we finish up this afternoon now. With the WHYH, or Yahweh becomes Lord tradition, we would have inherited a Bible where one name, Yahweh, was acting and, and speaking in the Old Testament, while one name, Jesus, is acting in the New. Instead, we read of one Lord. The Lord known by Israel as Creator, Savior, Holy, and Righteous. And the Lord, known by Christians as Creator, Savior, Holy, and Righteous, they are the same. Jesus is the Lord. The Father and the Son are the same God, and the Spirit leads humanity to recognize this. We Do we read about Jesus in the Old Testament? Of course we do, because we read about the Lord in the Old Testament. Therefore, we need to accept the character of God as presented in the entire Bible. There is no God of wrath in the Old Testament, and God of love in the New Testament. We must accept the gracious and judging Yahweh has the same character as the gracious and judging Jesus. And you better believe that Jesus is judging. If you don't believe me, just read Revelations. Jesus will come as the judge three ways, Exodus 3 testifies about Jesus. testifies that there is one hero of scripture. The meaning of Yahweh. That Yahweh is both merciful and gracious, yet will by no means clear the guilty. It points us to the cross. Those two verses. The revealer of Yahweh. The revealer of the name of God is Jesus himself, the angel of the Lord. who was in the burning bush and talked Moses, the name itself, Yahweh. Therefore God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I'm just amazed and in awe of your word, Lord. There is no way, there is no way your word could be so consistent if you weren't the true author. But I know from the doctrine of inspiration, Lord, that you use men to write, and we see their personalities in each different book of Scripture, Lord, come out. Yet, there is one consistent theme throughout Genesis to Revelation. There is one hero through it all seed of the woman Jesus God he is our only hope God I pray for those that haven't put their faith in him yet Lord that they would do that knowing he is our only hope that that you are a God that will not let sins just go you won't overlook sins Lord so either we are going to pay for all of our sins in eternity in hell Lord or we can put our faith in Jesus who came and died on the cross Took our place, Lord, and, and took our sins. God, I pray that if anyone that is here that does not know Your Son, Lord, that they don't leave this place until they put their faith in His name.